Today's reading is from Luke 10, verses 1 to 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. It's good to see uh, some uh, old and new faces uh, this morning. Welcome back uh, to Lord's Love, and I'm glad we were able to uh, celebrate uh, this day together. It's my privilege. I'm so excited to have Dawn Humphreys uh, be with us. Uh, she was part of the, the, uh, speaking at a winter conference a couple years ago, and our leadership team was there and heard her talks, and we're like, hey, we got to have her come <laughs> to our church and to share the word of God with us. So a bit of an intro. Dawn helped plant Strathcona Vineyard Church almost 16 years ago. 16 years ago? 17, something like that. Uh, has served uh, as a lead pastor for the past uh, 13 to 14 years. Uh, Strathcona Vineyard is a, a vibrant, multi-ethnic, mixed socioeconomic congregation in the heart of Vancouver's downtown east side, uh, Canada's poorest uh, urban postcode, as many of us know. And she uh, was also on the founding team for Jacob's Well, which many of us are familiar with as well, a relationally focused ministry in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And she was also on staff there for, uh, for 11 years until 2012. Prior to her life uh, in Vancouver, Dawn spent eight wonderful years in various parts of Southeast Asia with St. Stephen's Society, a community amongst the poor based in Hong Kong. And maybe she'll throw a bit uh, of what she knows, <laughs> language-wise. Uh, originally from Liverpool, England, her pa other passions include Liverpool Football Club, cooking for her friends, swimming, camping, hiking, and reading. So it's my privilege and, uh, to invite uh, Don Humphreys up. Let's give a very warm LLC welcome. Good. It's really great to be with you, and uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, yes, as um, was just shared, um, I yeah I've I've been in Canada for a number of years, but lived in Asia before. I've actually been in Canada twenty years last month. It's amazing, hey? I was in Asia for eight years. I'm getting old, guys. I'm getting old. But yes, I helped start with my friend Joyce, this community in the downtown east side, building friendship uh, with people in our neighborhood. And then people started coming to Jesus or having their faith reignited. And we were like, what should we do? So we were driving out to Langley. That was where our church, our sending church was. And it didn't take us much to realize that that wasn't going to work long term. And... Um, we looked around the neighborhood, and most of the churches that had started out there had become missions. 
So they weren't in the job of discipling people, they were in the job of helping people. And so with the permission and discernment of our elders back then, um, we felt compelled to plant in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And what we've been doing since then is learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and caring about what Jesus cares about and asking that question, what does it, what is it that Jesus cares about? So that's a question we ask ourselves, isn't it? What matters to Jesus? What is it that Jesus cares about? Do you remember Jesus was asked on a number of occasions, what was the most important thing? What was the greatest commandment? And uh, it turns up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he answers this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus quotes two verses, doesn't he, from the Old Testament that sum up the law, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And it's on these two commandments that it all hangs. And then the same question comes up in Mark and then in Luke. And you'll remember the story in Luke. It's this lawyer, this lawyer who asked Jesus the question. Um, and then he goes on to test Jesus, doesn't he? Because he answers correctly. Because Jesus turns the questions in and he answers correctly. And so the, the lawyer says, okay, so, you know, who's my neighbor? And we know this story. Jesus goes on to the, tell the story of the Good Samaritan um, who's attacked by robbers, lying by the wayside. No one knows if this person's dead or alive. And the hero in the story is somebody who's marginalized, right? Is somebody who's an outcast. Is somebody who's considered a half-caste, a Samaritan. And this really ends up being a story about neighborliness, doesn't it? It's not about doing good deeds, um, if you look at verse 36 in, 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 in uh, Luke 10, Jesus turns this question around and says, which of the three was a neighbor? Which of these three was neighborly to the man? And the answer is the one who showed kindness, mercy, it says in the NIV. Then go and do likewise, action is involved. So we don't have time to go into this story today, but I want to point something out to you. The very fact that it comes right after the mission that the 70 are sent on tells you something about what matters to Jesus, right? Jesus is telling us that part of what it means to be a disciple is to engage with those who we would not ordinarily connect with, right? It's to be with people and in their lives, whether they like us or not, whether they look like us, sound like us, and to care especially to be in relationship and toward those who have been oppressed or who've struggled, or who've suffered. This is what it means to live with God's mercy and kindness. And this message, the message of being a disciple is highly relational. This is the thing I talked about at the winter conference. At the core of it, it's highly relational. And it's about making ourselves available to those we encounter, making ourselves available. So as we join this story in Luke 10, we find that Jesus has been teaching, actually, on the cost of discipleship. I know you've been going through Luke, so perhaps that's something that's come up. In particular, the priority of a discipleship, taking up your cross, lots of sort of talk like that, what it means to be a follower, and, and what is involved in being a disciple. But let me ask a question. 
discipleship. We think about the disciples of Jesus, don't we? And, and who are sent on mission here in chapter 9 and 10, the 12 first and then the 70 or 72. And do we think they were saved when they were on the ministry trip? Actually, let me start a bit further back. Do we think these followers were saved when they met Jesus? No. What about midway through being with Jesus, seeing what he did, hearing everything he taught, maybe a little closer? What about at the end of Jesus' ministry? No. Even when Jesus was ascending to heaven to go and be back with the Father in Acts 1, they're still asking questions. They still don't get it until the Holy Spirit reveals it to them. And as we join this story in chapter 10, we're reminded that God uses that who God uses and who God is willing to work through reveals something about discipleship and mission, actually. Think about that a moment. It's not about knowing all the information or having read all the right books, right? And sometimes it's about God using people who really don't know him that well and are just on that journey. Jesus' way of discipleship and mission is to spend intentional time with people, right? Jesus' way of discipleship and mission is to spend intentional time with people. God uses who's willing and open to him, both the believer and the unbeliever, both those who are new on the journey, who are questioning, who are finding out. He calls those who sometimes are only a little further along than us um, to be with God and to be actively looking for those with curious, open eyes, and finding those who are, who are asking questions about life and meaning and, and are open and curious. And to encounter these people, we not only have to make ourselves available, but we have to be looking. We have to be looking for them and going to where they are, inviting them into our homes, spending time in their homes. This is what Luke 10 encourages, isn't it? See, up until now, Jesus' strategy for discipleship has kind of been life-on-life discipleship, right? It doesn't feel like a strategy. He spent time living, sharing, teaching, serving, demonstrating, inviting, being rejected, delivering people from bondage, healing people, multiplying, befriending, receiving, and all with this intimate group of 12. But there are others that we know about, right? There are some women who supported him that we find out about in Luke 8, you know? And then there are his friends, Martha and Mary. It's interesting how many friends he had with women. And, um, and then there's this 72 that Jesus chooses, he appoints. So we know there's more than just a small group of people hanging out with Jesus or experiencing who Jesus is. So it might look like a haphazard way to do discipleship but it's very intentional, this life on life. And this tells us something about what it means to disciple and be on mission. Jesus' way of discipleship is to be available, okay? Is to be available. Jesus' way of discipleship also involves letting go of comfort and taking risks. You know, in the West, there's a very strong gravitational pull towards comfort and to avoiding discomfort, isn't there? We tend to avoid people who aren't like us or make us feel uncomfortable, whether it's their lifestyle, the way, what they say, the way they are, their background or experience. And yet Jesus 
invites all disciples to this work of mission, which means moving out of our comfort zones and trusting in him to do the work and engaging with people who are often not like us, just like the story of the Samaritan and the guy at the roadside, right? Notice how he did this in chapter 9 with the 12 first. We see Jesus sending out his trusted group of followers, the 12, to practice everything he's taught them, authority over demons and disease. Part of their discipleship involves being single-minded in their focus on mission and trusting God, believing that God would provide for them. So the very fact they didn't take things that they, along with the, the road with them that they would usually rely on, like money or food, tells us that they were to trust God to provide for them and to receive people's hospitality. How do they get on? Do you remember? Luke 9, 6 tells us that they did what Jesus said. They shared the good news. Miracles happened. They healed people. They make themselves available and take and get this, they take risks. It's not easy to go out there and do what Jesus says, is it? Then we see that they return back to Jesus for a debrief and everything, sharing everything that's happened. And as this debrief is going on, thousands of people turn up. Gosh, that can't be very nice, right? All of a sudden, there's just all these people around. And so Jesus pivots, doesn't he, and starts teaching these people late into the afternoon. And then we know from nine, uh, Luke 9, 10 to 17, that the disciples have experienced God's provision um, on their journey and places to stay and food to eat. They've had strangers welcome them. They've had all this provision, okay? All these ways that they've had this wonderful ministry experience as they've trusted Jesus. Um, but then we find out at this moment they're worried They're worried that they don't have enough. They're worried it's getting late, and they tell Jesus, we need to send all these people home. They need food and lodgings. And we know the story. They look at their lack, even though they've had all that ministry experience of reaching out to people and befriending people. And Jesus looks at the opportunity, five loaves and two fishes, right? Sometimes we get stalled on doing God's mission work in the world because we focus on what we lack rather than on the opportunity to risk and move out of our comfort zone. We look at who we are and we think we don't know enough. We make excuses for why we can't take more risks because we're too busy or we don't have the right priorities, right? Be available. Be willing to take risks. These ministry experience 12 then get a second test, don't they? It comes a lot later in verse 37. When a man, do you remember this? When a man brings a demon-possessed boy to Jesus and he says the disciples had tried, but they couldn't do it. (laughs) What usually gets focused on when we look at this text is just Jesus' words, oh, faithless and perverse generation, right? But it actually gives us a picture of, of, of people who are constantly being stretched to risk. And they're still learning what it means to follow Jesus. And so what we should focus on is their courage, their courage to risk. We're going to fail sometimes at at our endeavors, at the risks we take with people. Um, But Jesus will love that we tried, right? Be available, take risks. That is what it means to be a disciple, isn't it? 
It's not easy, and it's supposed to cost because it actually shines the light on Jesus. We have to rely on Jesus. Be available. Take risks. It's as Jesus is finishing this teaching then in the next section on the cost of following him. Do you remember this? Verse 57 and 62. You probably did it last week. Listing the various excuses that people have of why they can't or can follow Jesus, that Jesus reminds them of this very important fact. They need to have a single-minded focus to serve the kingdom of God. Remember that. No one, no farmer who's plowing will look back because it'll go all askew, right? And then once again, he invites his followers, this larger band, out of their comfort zone, trusting him to do the work, and he sends out the 72. Jesus' way of discipleship means we need to constantly remember that we are part of his family and his labor force, and we mustn't give up praying, okay? There's lots of work to do, verse 2 of chapter 10 tells us. It's good work, important work, meaningful work, kingdom work, essential work that all followers are invited into. And at its core is prayer. It's like the very foundation. Jesus was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the work is a few. Ask, 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 ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest fields. The Greek word for ask is actually much stronger than ask. It's like plead, implore, urgently appeal. Think about it. It's an amazing mystery that God, who is sovereign, Lord of the harvest, seems to limit himself and invites our participation for more laborers for his harvest. When we think about Jesus' words in verse 2, we have to ask ourselves, do we pray for the harvest? Do we regularly pray for Jesus' work in our workplace, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our places of influence, in our youth groups, around the world? Do we pray for our hearts to hear what God is inviting us into and who we're supposed to be spending time with, making ourselves available, taking risks? Let's be honest. We all pray for things that matter, right? We pray for our family, probably. And if we're struggling with finances or a job, we'll pray for those things. We pray earnestly about our needs, don't we? Because those things matter to us. We give value and pray for the things that matter to us. What matters to Jesus? That's the question we're asking, is it? Prayer is supposed to be this conversation. Plead, ask, and God will respond, right? Where we're not only asking, but we're listening. So the important question or questions that we should be asking is, are we praying for our hearts that are aligned with what matters most to God? Being good neighbors, reaching others. And are we asking God for more opportunities to be sent to engage with those who don't know Jesus? How are we being the answer to the question Jesus is asking? Be available. Be willing to take risks. Jesus' way of discipleship means that it's, gonna, it's not going to be easy, but God is always going to be with us. The disciples are reminded in verse 3 to go, which means not to hesitate, but they're also told that they're being sent like sheep amongst wolves. Now, most sheep I know would not run into a wolf pack, right? 
Those sheep would be crazy. And yet Jesus is telling us to go into experiences that are not always easy. And again, the invitation is to risk and trust that God knows what he's up to. Be available. Be willing to take risks. Jesus' way of discipleship requires constant refocus so that we're not distracted from what's really important. There is a sense of urgency and single-mindedness about the 72's mission, isn't there? They're not to, you know, they're told to go. They're told the harvest is plentiful. They're told they need to pray for more workers. But they're also told not to take stuff with them, not to worry about purses or bags or even sandals. You've got to think it's probably talking about spare sandals and not asking them to walk, walk barefoot, I hope. Um, Jesus tells them in 10... Chapter 10, verse 4, carry no purse, no bags, no shoes. And they were to travel light and trust that God would provide for them. They're not to de- be distracted by belongings and that you know, that where they're going, but their focus was to be on mission. They were to, um, to greet, no, not even to greet anyone on the way, which we think, God, oh, that's kind of rude, isn't it? <laughs> not being, not greet anyone on the way, but it's, it's encouraging, it's telling us that they're not to be distracted. Because in Middle Eastern culture, if you bumped into someone on the way, you could be there for hours just shooting the breeze, you know? So te- Jesus is telling them something about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, and the disciples are not to be distracted by trying to look for the ba- best place to stay, you know? Who's got the best food? Who's got the most comfortable bed, right? But they're to stay in one place. Again, single-minded focus. As people, we live in a very distractible world, don't we? We know this. We know this. Social media, man, that is a distraction. I talk about. I talk to friends who um, they have to put blockers on their phones so they're not scrolling through Instagram. That starts off for five minutes and ends up being five hours, right? So we know we live in a very distractible culture, and that things are constantly vying for our attention, our energy, our time, our hearts. But the call is to prioritize what matters to Jesus, what matters. And we do this through prayer as our hearts are constantly trying to realign uh, with what God sees as valuable and important, right? Be available, be willing to take risks, and keep prioritizing what matters to Jesus. Jesus' way of discipleship always gives us clues of who to look for as we engage missionally. The 72 were to look for people of peace in verses 5 and 7. And the sign of a person of peace is someone who's welcoming in verse 8, right? But how do we know who a person of peace is? Here in the text, we find that they were people who were open to God in some way. And they were often people who were a gateway to others. Jesus modeled this in the way that he called his disciples, didn't he? Think about it. Do you remember how Peter was in Mark, this is Mark 1, um, invited Jesus to his home, and then he ended up healing Peter's mother-in-law. And then do you remember what happens after that? All these people start, all these people come to the house and all these people start getting healed. It's like Peter, the mother-in-law, were the gateway to others coming to know Jesus. So a person of peace is someone who is welcoming and hospitable. It might be someone we're already in relationship with, or it could be someone who welcomes you into their home or their workplace or to join an event with family and friends. 
But it could also be someone who seems to have an openness or a hospitable presence to you, you know? Someone who you just feel like there's a connection, even though they're quite different from you. They might be someone who God keeps highlighting to you to spend time with. Yeah, I wonder how so-and-so is. They might just be somebody who's in your mind and heart. For this to happen, we have to be available. You know I'm going to say that. Be available, be willing to take risks, and keep prioritizing what matters to Jesus. We often think of inviting people into our space, don't we? And when we're thinking of doing this kind of work, but nine times out of ten, we're engaging people in their space. This is so key. The fact that the followers were instructed to stay in one place also meant they got to know the people they were staying with. I don't know about you, but I've often when I've traveled and gone to other parts of Canada, I get billeted places. I mean, partly it's because I don't have that much money, but actually, more importantly, it's because I get to know the people where I'm staying, and I get to find all sorts of interesting things about them and experience, you know, their hospitality. But sometimes they're complete strangers to me, you know? They sometimes might be Christians, they sometimes might be not. So it's just a great opportunity to actually begin conversations and hear about people's lives. So being a person of peace is someone who's welcome and open, Being a person of peace is also someone who provides something. Think about that. They might invite you over for a meal or be willing to lend you something or be willing to help you with something. We can't underestimate the power of sharing that we have needs too and that this can be an opportunity for people to help us in doing something. This is a lot how our work in the downtown east side has ended up happening. You know, in our neighborhood... Um, so many people are provided for that no one's given an opportunity to give. And it robs them of human dignity, actually, to say that they can only be the recipient and they can't be the giver. So there's ways that God uses people as givers to actually bring them into the kingdom. It's amazing, you know? And so we see this happening a lot in our context, but I think it happens that we have to have an imagination for what that looks like in our own context. How can we be in need or invite people on a project with us? How can we find ways and opportunities to meet these people of peace and welcome them into our world and our lives and us to go into their world and their lives? A person of peace is also usually someone who's receptive, right? We'll often find that a person of peace, um, that as we share our life with them, not just the parts of us that are good, the good front we want to put on, you know, but the other parts of us, that the struggles that we have, when we're willing to do this, I find that people really open up. And that's an opportunity for us to pray for. I remember this one story that Jo Saxton, who's an amazing woman, um, female, um, she's a Nigerian um, Brit, and um, she teaches a lot on empowering women, actually. But I remember her telling a story of, like, a group of them going to clean a, a pub after, or a nightclub. It was a nightclub um, after it had ended. They just felt as a community, a few of them should do this. And they were cleaning vomit, beer bottles, stinky place. And, you know, not many of those people, those people were probably too drunk to really know what was going on, responded. But the, the, the bodyguard or the the door person did. He was so curious about why these people would do this. It seemed really, really strange. And they felt like there was an openness in him. So they started having a conversation and realized that he had 
known about Jesus when he was younger, but he had no connection with God. And that started them on a journey for him coming into the kingdom. God works in mysterious ways, right? And uses all sorts of different avenues to bring people into his, you know, his family and to become part of his labor force. And we see in a number of stories that Jesus um, reaches out and then he reaches out to one and then whole communities come to faith, right? Think of the story of Levi earlier on in Luke 27 to 39. Do you remember that? And think of all the tax collectors that Levi reached. Think of the woman at the well in John 4. Do you remember that story? She went back to her village and told them, come meet a man who, who knows everything about me. She became the first evangelist. Think of Zacchaeus in Luke 9, in Luke 19, sorry, and his household, and so on and so on. Even the demoniac, even the demon at the Gerasenes, you know, who got delivered from this legion of demons in Mark 5, and then wanted to follow Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much God has had mercy on you. So the man went away and he went all over the place and told them what Jesus had done. People of peace who become a gateway to others. And that's the amazing thing. It seems that Jesus was always looking for these people and it was a different connection, a method perhaps you like, he used each time the spirit, from spiritual conversations with the woman at the well to challenging someone to obedience like Levi to power encounters with the demon-possessed man to acceptance and eating together. But the constant thing is that he found these people of peace and they multiplied his message, right? We also find people of peace in the early church as the gospel begins to spread to the Gentiles, don't we? What started with Jesus continued in ministry with, through the disciples in Acts. Think of Cornelius in Acts 10. Or remember the story of Lydia in Acts 16 and the jailer and his whole household. Like, it's really amazing. They just, they were obviously in an precarious position being in prison, but they didn't let that defeat them. They used the opportunity to minister to others. Or think about Aquila and Priscilla in Acts 18 and so on and so on. So a person of peace can be someone we meet once, someone we've known for a short term, someone we've known for a long time, but they can also be people who open up a, gate, a gateway people to a community of people. A person of peace can be male or female, they can be young or old, don't discount kids, don't discount seniors, don't discount people who are disabled. They can be anyone and everyone. We just have to be looking for them, be available, be willing to take risk, and keep prioritizing what matters to Jesus. It's interesting to note that both um, with the 12 and with the 72, Jesus debriefs with them. We can't miss out how essential this is. It reminds us of the, of the need as a community to celebrate the ways God's kingdom is coming and share stories of what's happening as we live this discipleship life, this missional life. And we're also, we're also to encourage each other when it's challenging and hard. That's why debriefing is so important. In our community, we do God stories. We say, does anyone have a God story? And you know, nine times out of ten, no one does. So it's not always great, but 
there's sometimes where you hear a story of a couple of people hanging out for coffee and then having this encounter with someone who they get to pray for. Or, or they, a lot of our stories are of crazy provision, actually, where God provides for us in unusual ways. Those stories, those stories of our encounter with others, they build faith in us, don't they? And when they're difficult, when we share the stories of things that have just not gone right, um, they help us to keep going. So debriefing. So what is it that Jesus cares about? Jesus cares that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love him with everything. We give him everything. We know this. And he cares that we are about his business in loving others, our neighbors, particularly the ones who are oppressed, particularly the ones who struggle. And he cares that we care about others who don't know Jesus yet. Jesus cares that we're available. Jesus cares that we're willing to take risks and trust him. Jesus cares that we prioritize what matters to Jesus. So let's just sum up again what matters to Jesus in being a disciple. Jesus' way of discipleship is to spend intentional time with people who don't know him. Jesus' way of discipleship involves letting go of comfort and taking risks to trust God. Jesus' way of discipleship means constantly remembering that we are, an, we are an essential part of God's labor force, and it's not somebody else's job. Jesus' way of discipleship means keeping our hearts for the spread of the kingdom news in our own backyards and not just in other countries through prayer, really aligning ourselves with to what God wants and asking. Jesus' way of discipleship means that following him means engaging with others who don't know him. And this is not easy, but the Holy Spirit helps us to do it. Jesus' way of discipleship requires constant refocus so that we're not distracted from God's call to be outwardly focused, right? Jesus' way of discipleship gives us clues of who to look for as we engage missionally. So be available, be willing to take risk, and keep prioritizing what matters to Jesus. Amen. Let me just pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much that you find a way of inviting us into this journey of, of what it means to be laborers for your kingdom good work what it means to be your workers. Thank you for that invitation. Help us, God, to seek you so that we make ourselves available. Help us, God, to seek you so that we push ourselves out of our comfort zone and take risks to talk to people who are different than us. Help us, God, to seek you so that we really have a sense of what matters to you, what's on your heart, and we don't get distracted from this call to be your followers by other things. And Jesus, help us to find ways of encouraging one another, of sharing these stories, of sharing what's hard, but not losing sight that we are part of what it means to bring the good news of the kingdom to others. Give us courage, Lord. Give us courage. In Jesus' name, amen.